We turn this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 4 through 13. Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 13. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we responded, respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Last week we saw that the writer to the Hebrews in presenting to his readers the truth that the conflicts, the struggles, the hardships, the trials they're undergoing for their faith in Christ, we saw him presenting the truth that these constitute what he characterizes as the race that is set before us. Their Christian life, what with all its challenges, is a race, a race entailing the exercise of faith, a race which they are obliged to run with stout-hearted endurance. And in running this race, they are to find motivation in the fact that they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We saw that he was referring to there, he was referring there to that numerous body of evidences, those numerous attestations of the power of faith to overcome difficulties and receive blessings from God as exemplified in the lives of Israel's heroes of the faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Many of these saints overcame circumstances of intense suffering. All on account of their faith in God. And of course, surpassing all these luminaries 
was none other than our Lord Jesus himself, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the writer says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And in consequence of his running his divinely appointed race in such impressive fashion, the Jewish Christians here in this epistle were exhorted to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that they may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In a various sense, the same exhortation applies to you and me today. We are to remain strong, particularly in the face of suffering, in the face of hardships, then we must focus on Jesus. We must consider him. We must contemplate him. And as we come to our text this morning, we notice in verse 4 a change of metaphor from that of an athlete to that of a boxer in a ring. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Paul similarly mixes these two metaphors, that of a an athlete in a race, and that of a boxer in conflict. Both metaphors highlight the grueling, rigorous nature of Christian living. Perhaps that of the boxer in combat does so even more. Alluding to a boxer in a fight, the author, in encouraging his readers, addresses that in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now to help us see the picture being drawn here, we're told that in the sport of boxing, in boxing matches during the Greco-Roman period, the boxers would affix to their hands fist enhancement gloves. And worn over the knuckles, these were made of hard leather and there were strips of metal sewn into these hard leather strips. And of course, one need not think too hard what was the purpose of that device. It was to land devastating blows to the body of an opponent. In fact, boxing matches back then would sometimes find the face of an Opponent awash with blood from dreadful blows sustained. At times, there would be severe injuries resulting in death. It was brutal. And that a contestant would resist even while bleeding would attest to the fact that he was determined to fight to the death, to fight with no intention of yielding. And against the backdrop of this imagery, the readers of the epistle to the Hebrews are reminded that their struggle against sin had not yet reached such severe proportion. The writer says to them, in your struggle, in your wrestling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, you have not yet reached the place where Christ himself reached. And with that said, the author then transitions to the theme of the Lord's discipline from 
verse 4 all the way to verse 13. As we look at these verses, we discover that the word discipline occurs as many as eight times, underlying discipline as the main idea. Suggests that discipline is the overriding idea of these verses. Underlying discipline, of course, is the idea of training, and specifically as portrayed in these verses, God's discipline come in the form of sufferings of all kinds. Hardships, afflictions, all of which come in the course of one's commitment, of one's profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they come, as we'll see this morning, not to hurt us, but to hone us. The author encourages the recipients of this epistle to therefore regard these hardships they encounter in the course of their Christian lives as training, as disciplinary exercises that are geared toward their spiritual improvement. They are to embrace these trials as suffering, these trials, these sufferings, as God's school for the education of their faith. They are to see these trials, these sufferings, not as unnecessary evils, but as God at work in their lives in order to make of them the best he can make them. As we look at our text this morning, there are at least three suggested thoughts, three suggested thoughts. First of all, the text addresses this matter of reactions to God's discipline, reactions to God's disciplines. So let me begin by saying here, that the sufferings and trials we encounter as Christians may or may not prove to be a blessing. You've probably heard the saying, the same wax that melts, the same sun that melts wax is the same sun that hardens the clay. Suffering does not necessarily make us better. For some people, suffering makes them bitter. As A.B. Simpson so well notes, quote, there are souls that suffer and are not sanctified, sweetened and mellowed. There are trials that are wasted and thrown away. There are bitter tears that leave only desolation behind there are lives that are scorched, soured, and crushed by trials and only driven further from God's righteousness. Suffering in itself, he says, cannot sanctify everything depends upon our attitude to the trial and our being trained by it, end quote. And with that said, here in our passage... The writer is very much concerned about how his readers react to trials. He's concerned that they respond to their trials positively with the right kinds of attitudes. He wants them to throw off certain negative attitudes, the kind of attitudes that run at cross-purposes with what God is seeking to do through their lives 
by way of suffering. What then are some of the negative attitudes to which he calls their attention? And here we can apply these to our lives. What are some of the wrong attitudes, the negative attitudes we can bring to our occasions or situations of trials, of sufferings, of adversities? And here it comes, number one, forgetfulness of God's word. Forgetfulness of God's word. Citing Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, notice he rhetorically asks in verse 5a, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. What was happening here, as we have said time and again in these studies, here were Christians who were suffering severe persecution. They were being persecuted. They were being harassed because of their faith in Christ. They were Jewish Christians who were being persecuted by their Jewish countrymen. Why? Because of the name of Christ which they had embraced. And under the weight of intense persecution, these believers had become so jaded in their thinking that they had grown inattentive to the word of God. Notice, going back to chapter 2, verse 1, the writer had to say to them, listen, we have to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. By the time we get to chapter 10, verse 25, he's charging them with the fact that some of them were neglecting to assemble on the Lord's day. They were, they were neglecting the public worship and teaching of the word of God. And what was the result? Of course, they lost sight of what the word of God said concerning suffering, concerning trials. Of course, such forgetfulness of God's word only led to other negatives. And this brings us to the second negative attitude toward the Lord's discipline, which the writer mentions in this passage. And that is dismissiveness of God's discipline. There was forgetfulness of, the, of God's word to begin with. And then secondly, on their part, there was a dismissive attitude toward God's discipline. Notice, he cites again Proverbs, the text in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. And he says to them, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. What is the writer doing here? The, the writer is bringing to bear on their situation, on their negative attitude, the word of God showing them by way of correction that they are not to be treating lightly, they are not to be despising the word of God. Suggested by the citation of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, is that they were despising or trivializing the Lord's discipline. And how is that done? How do you and I today despise the Lord's discipline? How do we trivialize what God is trying to do in our lives by way of discipline through the sufferings we encounter, the trials, the adversities? And here are some of the ways in which we do that. Whenever we regard those trials, those sufferings, those afflictions as unwanted, undesirable, and annoying intrusion into our lives. Sometimes we hear it come out in murmuring, grumbling. Why do I have to go through all of these distresses? Why do I have to go through all of these and you'll hear people say they're, they're, they're cross, they're crosses. 
And when we seek to use every means possible to worm our way out of the situation, when we seek to use every means possible to remove these situations from our lives, we are despising the Lord's discipline. People squirm, they wheel, they try to worm their way out of the situation, and they resort to means, carnal means. They seek advice from friends that do not line up with the word of God. They take matters into their own hands. And so what happened? They trivialize, they treat lightly exactly what God is trying to do in their lives, namely to make them better. Whenever we fail to recognize and acknowledge the hand of the Lord in our situations of trials, of sufferings, of adversities, whenever we fail to see those difficulties as tokens of God's discipline, God's training us, whenever we we fail to see those as part of his sanctifying work in our lives to make us better Christians, we are in effect treating the Lord's discipline lightly. Whenever we fail to see the worth, the value of our trials, of our sufferings in terms of being God's being at work in our lives, we are treating lightly the Lord's discipline. The fact is, as painful as they might be, it is God's will that you and I go through these experiences because they function as spiritual training for us. Through these trials and sufferings, God wants us to learn certain lessons we could never have learned apart from these sufferings. A third negative attitude to which the writer calls the the, the attention of his readers and which we need to pay attention to, these negative attitudes towards suffering is dispiritedness with regard to God's discipline. Dispiritedness with respect to God's discipline. Look at the C part of verse 5. He says, nor be weary of his reproof. He's speaking here, not just of their becoming discouraged, but of their what? Losing heart, falling, as it were, into despair. Here's a person uh, going through some trials, some suffering, and this is a professing Christian, and here is that person, he or she, in sulks. Maybe you try to bring a verse of comfort, and the response would be, you don't know what I'm going through. What are they doing right there? They're despising the word of God. They're succumbing to despair he's addressing these Christians because they were getting to the point where they were causing their sufferings to break them down as it were he's urging them then not to take the Lord's discipline so hard to the point where it breaks their spirit His is a call to them not to cast away their faith and trust in God, not to faint in the midst of the Lord's training process, painful and distressing as it might be. That was, what, that was why he had encouraged them in chapter 12 and verse 3. Earlier we considered last week, he says, consider him, consider him, Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not become faint and weary in your minds. 
So we need to watch our attitudes in times of suffering. Are we neglecting God's word? Are we being forgetful of God's word? It's ironic, isn't it? That many a time, for example, you'll find believers going through one trial or another. They are in the throes of deep suffering and you don't see them around and you say, well, I haven't seen you. And the, the response would be, you know, I'm just not up to it. And when you press and you find that what they're going through, in other words, I just can't. I'm just not in the mood to be at church. I'm not in the mood and you try to put in a word, you bring the scriptures to bear, and it's, even if it's not said, the attitude suggests, well, you don't know what I'm going through. You're just talking. What is that? Forgetfulness of God's word. Treating lightly the word of God, succumbing to despair and dispiritedness. We need to watch those attitudes because those are the kinds of attitudes that run counter to what God is seeking to accomplish in our lives. That is why we need to recall what the Apostle James says. He says, but let patience have its perfect work in those trials that you might be complete and mature, wanting nothing what then are some positive attitudes the writer advocates with respect to God's discipline? What then are some positive attitudes you and I need to adopt in times of suffering? And there are basically two we suggest. First of all, verse 12, we need courageous fortitude. We need courageous fortitude. Here's what he says. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Translation, pull up your bootstraps. Pull up yourself by your bootstraps. <laughs> Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's reflecting here the language of Isaiah 35 verses 3 and 4. The imagery here is one of paralyzing fear of spiritual fatigue, of spiritual listlessness. He says, stop it. Lift up those hands that are sagging. And strengthen those wobbly knees. Pull yourself together is what he's saying. He's saying to them that this spirit of buckling under hardships, they need to shake it off. Here's a call to them to be reinvigorated by the grace of God to adopt a new resolve, a new determination to stay the duration of the race. He's saying, yes, the race is causing you this pain. You feel it. He says, listen, don't grow weary. Hang in there. Lift up those sagging hands. Get those feet moving. Don't succumb to dispiritedness and listlessness. Don't be paralyzed by your circumstances, is what he's saying. Here's the challenge to them then, to renew their strength, to run and not be weary, so that they can run with endurance the race that is set before them. Isaiah 40 verse 31, compared with Hebrews 12 and verse 1. The question is, how are they going to do that? How are we going to pull ourselves up and get going, so to speak? Well, it all goes back to what the writer stated in verses 2 and 3, which in summary 
was this, by looking to Jesus and by considering him. By looking to Jesus and by considering him. That's how you and I will be able to have courage and fortitude in the face of God's discipline, in the face of God's testing. We need courage and we need fortitude. I don't know your situation this morning, my friends, and I'm not saying this to trivialize it. But here's the point. This is the truth. The word of God is saying we cannot afford to be overtaken and be drowned, as it were, by our circumstances, by the pressures, by the conflicts, the, the, the afflictions we are going through. We need God's grace. Now, a second positive attitude to the Lord's discipline which the writer of Hebrews urges and which you and I need to adopt as we face trials, as we face adversities, is undistracted focus. That is to say, single-minded devotion to God's appointed path. Look at verse 13. The writer says there this. He says that make straight paths for your feet so that what is lay may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He says, make straight for your paths for your feet. Your knees are wobbly. You're all droopy. Make straight paths for your feet so that that which is laid might not be turned aside, but rather be healed. In the Old Testament, we find a number of references to walking a straight path, all representing the idea of walking in the divinely appointed path of righteousness. You'll see, for example, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, Isaiah 26, verse 7, Jeremiah 31, verse 9, all of which make reference to the straight or level path of God's appointed way for us as believers. The call to make straight paths for our feet, the author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers, he's encouraging them not to be derailed by the hurdles, by the difficulties they encounter in the race of faith. They are to keep a straight course, they are to press on through them in spite of the obstacles they encounter. That's what he's suggesting. He's saying, yes, there are obstacles in the path, but make straight paths for your feet. Don't go about meandering. Don't go about me wandering. Don't try to evade them. Don't try to escape them. Why? Because that's the divinely appointed path that God has assigned us. He's urging them then to stay on track. He's urging them to stop meandering, to stop wandering to the right, to the left. He's saying that they are not to get off course they are not to get off course and so miss out on what God is seeking to accomplish in their lives as he trains and disciplines them. Notice the last clause. Notice what he says there, the last clause. He says, why should you keep a straight course? He says this, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What is, what is he talking about there? Here is a call. A reminder to believers that the way they run their race of faith, the manner in which they approach their race, the way they relate to God's discipline, to his discipline in their lives, positively or negatively, other believers as they run the race will be impacted. 
In other words, here's what he's saying. If we're not keeping a straight course, if we're wobbling, if we're losing focus, if we are meandering, trying to evade the obstacles in our path, which are all part of the race, it's an obstacle race, if we are floundering in the race, others, especially weaker brethren, will likewise flounder, will likewise fail. Suggested in the text, notice his allusion to the weaker brethren as he says, that which is lame, lest that which is lame be put out of joint. It's a warning, beloved, that our lives are being watched. It's a warning to us concerning how we use our influence, especially in times of trials, especially in times of adversities. The manner in which we respond can either help or hinder others in their walk with the Lord, in their race of faith. He says, lest that be which is lame be put out of joint, the suggestion here, lest they become spiritually dislocated. In other words, lest they apostatize from the faith. How often we hear of people turning from the faith through adversities, and then who knows the impact they have, especially on weaker Christians who, looking up to them, who they were, they become what? Discouraged. And so what? They stop walking with the Lord themselves. The question this morning is, what is your attitude toward trials, toward suffering, towards God's disciplining work in, in your life? The question is, how do you handle the hardships and stresses when they come in your life? I ask myself that question. What kind of attitude are we exhibiting? Do we show in those times that we place a premium on the word of God, that that is our stay, that that is our hope? Because here's a sobering truth, beloved. We never, it's never more evident, you see, what, in what our hope lies, in what we are resting, than when we are going through suffering. Suffering has a way of revealing what we are hoping in and trusting in. By God's grace, the question is, should we be in the dark valley, the depths of suffering and sorrow? Would it be our default position to turn to the word of God? Or would we be forgetful of God's word? Would we say something like this? You know, that's not practical. Nobody knows my situation. This is not working for me. You know, there are professing Christians who take that approach. All of a sudden, the word of God is no longer premium. Why? Because of what they're going through, somehow the Bible all of a sudden becomes outdated. It doesn't apply to what I am going through. It doesn't apply to my situation. And so what happens? They turn to sources which, according to the word of God, offer no light. People turn to the counsel of the ungodly. They turn to their own devices. The prophet Isaiah says they kindle their own fire. In other words, they're seeking their own comfort amidst the cold of suffering, affliction. 
The question this morning is, what kind of attitude are we displaying as others look on? Do we buckle under adversities or pressures? Do we become bitter, not being mindful of the fact that these are means by which the Lord builds and matures his people? And then does our response to this work of God encourage or discourage others to come to Christ and follow them? Our responses to the word of God in times of suffering, our responses to suffering, are we relying on the word of God or are we relying on our own, own human wisdom? That is why the, the James, James in James chapter 1 verse 5, right in the context of suffering, of adversities. Here's what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all men and does not hold back. He does not scold. James is talking there about the need to resort to God's word in, in times of trials to find wisdom. We look secondly this morning at the reasons for God's discipline, the reasons for God's discipline. Why does God administer discipline in our lives. And there are various reasons as to why God may allow us to suffer. First of all, God may allow us to go through suffering to prove the genuineness of our faith. We see that in the case of Job. Job, the entire book of Job really is about Job's faith being tested by God. In fact, we hear Job later saying somewhere in the book, he says, when he has tried me, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. God may allow us to go through suffering to prove the genuineness of our faith, but secondly, he may allow suffering in our lives to make us more Christ-like, to make us more like Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, saying with respect to the Lord Jesus, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You know, what is he saying here? Even God's son, the Lord Jesus, sinless, spotless as he was, was tested and tried. Paul's desire was to know Christ and the power of his resurrection that he may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. God allows us to go through suffering, beloved, to bring us to that place where we recognize our insufficiency and hence our absolute need for dependence on God. Second Corinthians 1 verses 8 through 10, Paul's own testimony says, I would not have you ignorant brethren of the great pressures which came upon us while we were in Asia. We were so pressed beyond measure that we despaired even of life. And then he goes on to say, but God who raises the dead, he did all of this so that we might learn not to trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He allows suffering, beloved, to teach us patience. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, tribulation produces patience. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, God through trials work patience, but let patience, through trials bring about patience, but let patience have her perfect work. 
And here in our text, we learn first of all that God exercises discipline to demonstrate his love, to demonstrate his love. Look at verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We're dealing here with God's fatherly discipline. But let me say here by way of application, my friends, let me say here's a word of application to parents, to mothers, to fathers. There's a notion abroad that this matter of loving our children and disciplining our children are really conflicting, contrary state of affairs. Some parents believe that to love their child means never to scold them, never to spank them, never to cross their wills, never to curb their behavior by way of discipline. Some actually believe that if ever they resort to disciplining their children, they'll in fact lose the affection of their children. But let me say here, our first responsibility is not to be concerned about that. Yes, we ought to be loving toward them. We ought to do everything possible to love them, make them feel loved. But here's the point. Our responsibility, my friends, is to be parents, is to train our children, is to discipline our children. Some say, well, if I, if I discipline them, then, you know, how will they know I love them? <laughs> One of, the, one of the things we need to realize is, based on what the Word of God teaches, when we're not disciplining our children, we're in fact hating them. Yes? That's what the Bible says. We are in fact hating them. Because the Word of God says in Proverbs 13, verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves his son is diligent to what? Discipline him. No, he's not talking about here a feeling of aversion, a feeling of dislike. What he's saying here, he says this, that when we fail to discipline our children, we hate them, we hate them in the sense that we're not giving them what is best for them to save them from what? Destruction. To save their lives. And here in our text, we see that there's no disconnect between love and discipline. Why? Because we're told in verse 6 that the Lord disciplines the one he loves, he chastises every son he receives. I realize we have to stop here this morning. I'm going to stop on that. No, but let me say here, God sending trials in our lives, God allowing us to go through suffering. If there's one thing we, we take away this morning, it is not to make life bitter for us. It is not to hurt us. It is to bless us. It is to build us. It is to hone and shape our characters and to make us more like himself. It's very important we bear these things in mind. Our Lord Jesus himself went through it. And praise God, through his sufferings, through his trials, through his testing, we actually benefited from that because that was what qualified him to be our savior. He became then the author of salvation to those who obey him.